Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we discuss, educate and talk about industry news and hot topics, company reviews and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International. With a career covering nearly two decades, Mining International partners with new and junior miners and larger predominant players in the market. With no further ado, here is your host, Rob Tyson. Hi, mining community. Welcome again to another episode of the Dig Deep, the Mining Podcast. And today, I've got another special guest, Martin Horgan, who's the ex-director of Toro Gold. Um, who are an African gold exploring developer and have recently been bought out by Resolute Mining, um, who acquired their flagship asset, Mako Gold Mine, um, which is located in Senegal, which is a low-cost, high-margin asset. Um, I was really interested in getting Martin on the podcast, um, as he's achieved a lot with Toro Gold, um, and he didn't necessarily follow the normal path that most junior explorers would normally follow, um, which obviously he, he's going to explain in the course of this podcast. So let's get straight into this. And I want to welcome um, welcome Martin Horgan. How are you doing, Martin? Uh, hey, Rob. Uh, thanks very much for having me on. And uh, no, great. Thank you. Thank you very much. No, and I appreciate uh, you taking the time to, uh, to do this podcast. So um, just want to kick off starting off with um, a little bit about your background. Um, so obviously when you st- studied way back, doing uh, mine engineering um, and I just want to give the audience a little bit of background about your um, about your past before we get into more recent events with uh, obviously Toro Gold. Sure, no problem at all. So um, I studied mining engineering at Leeds University uh, between 92 and 95. Um, I then uh, did the milk round and actually joined Goldfields in South Africa direct from university where I worked as uh, in production. Uh, okay. So I I was at the East Refontaine mine over in the, uh, yeah. the West Bits, uh, where I worked underground. Yeah. Uh, and then I uh, did a little bit of time up at Namibia at the Sumeb operation as well for uh, yeah. three, four months up there. But yeah. um, post, uh, post Goldfields, I then joined uh, SRK, Stephen Robertson and Kirsten, yeah. in, the, in the Cardiff uh, and Johannesburg practices. Uh, and I worked there until about uh, 2000. Uh, working uh, across all their sort of projects from a lot of due diligence work and, and obviously feasibility and study work as well. I actually worked for Mike Armitage. Uh, uh, despite being a mine engineer, I was uh, in the geology team, so I did a bit of resource and reserve work with Mike and the team there as well, which is a, a fantastic grounding uh, uh, on the consulting side of life and also um, just in terms of uh, understanding uh, a lot of the sort of the various factors that go into sort of, you know, putting studies together. Yeah. I then left SRK in 2000. Uh, joined Barclays Capital, uh, the investment bank uh, in the city of London, uh, where I worked for six years until 2006. Uh, obviously, in the mining team, uh, initially uh, looking after sort of the, the, a lot of the technical work and the financial modelling, but over time progressed more into uh, have a sort of dual role with a little bit of business origination and project support as well. So that was, a, a, again, another great six years, seeing a very different side of the sector, seeing it from the sort of financier's side. Uh, so I've done a bit of production, done consulting and study work, and now did sort of six years in um, uh, in investment banking for Barclays Capital, uh, which was, uh, say, it was fantastic from both learning and also connections and contacts and just generally people you get to meet across the sector. Yeah. Um, post post Barclays, I joined the board of a, a little aimless junior called BDI Mining in about 2006-2007. That had uh, some alluvial diamond production out of Kalimantan in Indonesia under a Kimberley certificate. All the production was sold to De Beers uh, DMDL here in London uh, and also had a uh, gold project in Papua New Guinea um, that was uh, based, uh, say, listed here in London, but uh, operations in, say, in Indonesia and, and uh, exploration in, uh, in Papua New Guinea. Um, was on board for about 18 months there and really helped to, to, to get that project and that company turned around. Uh, and in fact, we were bought out by Clifford Elphick and Gem Diamonds in late 2007, early 2008. So that was uh, quite a successful sort of uh, step aside from the mining sector, from the in- banking sector back into mining, uh, and uh, so they helped the team there, worked with them quite closely, and were able to get a, a successful all cash takeover by by Gem in 2008. I then um, 
sort of hooked up with an ex-colleague who had worked with SRK, a chap called Howard Bills, who's an exploration geologist uh, based out of the, was studied here in the UK, but spent the last 30 years running around uh, predominantly Africa with companies like Samax and Axmin. Uh, and Howard and I were looking for sort of the next challenge. Uh, and as we sort of sat there in late 2008, early 2009, um, the industry, as you probably remember, post the GFC yeah. was in a pretty tough position. Uh, and there was very few dollars available for exploration. Junior companies were having a very tough time of it. Uh, and we took a, a fairly sort of counter-cyclical view of, of actually it was a perfect time to start a business because we felt that the combination of my connections um, with uh, people who had made some money out of the BDI uh, transaction plus general corporate and technical knowledge allied to Howard's exploration uh, experience across uh, across Africa in Samax and Axmin days, uh, we felt that actually it was a perfect opportunity to try and build a business on a counter-cyclical sort of argument. So we um, we established Toro uh, in early 2009, uh, and the idea was really to to build from a first principles a, a gold uh, gold company, starting off looking at exploration uh, and sort of applying to the dollars to the boring old thing of just getting out and doing field work and trying to see if we could make a discovery. And if we've made that discovery, try and push it forward to potentially a production decision. Yeah. So that really sort of took us up from sort of graduation in 95 through to the sort of the birth of Toro back in April, May 2009. Yeah. Um, interesting and varied uh, background that you have, uh, that you went through. Um, and I know a lot of graduates listen to uh, to this podcast. And so one of my first questions is, um, how did you get your first job after leaving university? And, and how was it difficult? Was it easy? And what did you do? I think I was fairly well. I think I was very fortunate that um, at that stage, some of the majors were still doing, you know, what we refer to as the milk round, where they would actively come to the university. They would present their company. They would host a, a series of sort of interviews over the course of a couple of days with some of the undergraduates, and then uh, be made offers to, uh, you know, on graduation, subject to certain quality in a level qualification that you could then get a job straight out of university with them. So. I've got to confess that um, that, that uh, probably unlike today, it was incredibly easy, uh, easier, I should say, for me that um, that as I say, that Goldfield actually came to Leeds University actively recruiting, yeah. and it was through that process that I was able to uh, to get a position with Goldfield, and hence left the UK, Manchester, and moved out to South Africa back in uh, back in ninety five, ninety six. Yeah. So um, so unfortunately, I don't have any blindingly clever insight <laughs> as, as I got my first uh, first sort of foot in the door. It was uh, more that more sort of traditional route of the milk. Yeah, and I suppose I suppose it was the uh, I suppose it was timing as well, timing of the market um, that at that particular time there's probably a lot of opportunities about, and I think it obviously I think it will turn over the coming years, and I think graduates will find hopefully find it a little bit easier um, than currently at the moment. So we keep our fingers crossed. Well, it, I sometimes head back to, um, I've been back a couple of times to Leeds University, uh, where I uh, where obviously I studied and uh, had a couple of talks there with various things. And, and one thing we've always done at Toro, and I know Howard's done through his various guises of Samax Axman and, and Toro, is to try and sort of retain and train UK graduates. But, you know, one of the things I hear about is that sort of uh, UK graduates telling me that, um, you know, when it comes up against a, an Australian or a, a Canadian graduate or, you know, undergraduate, that because they have indigenous mining sectors that often they struggle to come up that they've had two or three some of that work sort of jobs whereby they've been able to go and get a job at a, a domestic uh, you know exploration or development or even a production company yeah. and they feel that, that that sometimes sets them back a little bit my counter argument to that is that fine it's more difficult for a UK graduate but one of the things you could possibly do is, is look at getting a language and, and I would say predominantly French or Spanish and I think you know as, as a prospective employer when we were at Toro is that if an undergrad came in, a geologist, or, or for example, and said, look, I want to come and work for you, uh, and look, they may have done some mapping work as part of their undergrad study and maybe been lucky to get some, some of that work somewhere. But if they've said, listen, I've got, I've got work in French, I've got work in Spanish, for example, it does a couple of things. Certainly, Francophone Africa, uh, you know, suddenly opens up all of that, the French capability. And then if you look at Spanish, you're looking at South America as well. So straight away, you're probably more useful 
than uh, than a geologist that's got a little bit more uh, maybe practical summer vac experience but doesn't have the language that, that you can put them into a foreign environment and they're going to be more comfortable because they speak the language. And secondly, it shows a bit of initiative that you've actually thought about this and, and got off there and tried to do something and you different tried to differentiate yourself as well. So that's just a little personal view is that something like that which sort of shows in a prospective employer a bit of initiative and it's actually a pretty handy skill that you there's a big parts of the world you can go as a geologist, as a mining engineer, metallurgist, whatever it is. And if you can speak the local language, French or Spanish, then uh, I think you know you're probably several steps ahead of maybe other candidates at that stage. Yeah, I mean that's that's pretty interesting because I haven't heard I haven't really heard someone say that about a graduate actually studying another language. And I suppose it, do, it obviously it does make sense. It, t- t- it people tend to say obviously as your career progresses, then um, yeah, it'd be, it'd be good to study another language. But yeah, I suppose what why not do it earlier? earlier in your career than then later in your career and i suppose as you uh, when you grad when you're obviously studying a mining related subject you're you're in that process of learning all the time and it's obviously easier when you're younger to learn than when you're older to try and try and learn a language so yeah i suppose it, that makes sense actually Look, if you're presented with two candidates for a job in West Africa, one has, they've both got the same undergraduate degrees. Uh, One has got six weeks having worked on an RC rig in Western Australia drilling on an iron ore project. And the second one has working French. Then, to be honest with you, I think sending a a young graduate down to learn on the job anyway to Francophone West Africa, I would probably say that 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 ability to speak the, the local language, speak or not local language, speak French, would probably make them, a, 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 as an employer at least, you, they're probably more going to integrate into the camp, into the, their, their work colleagues, into the local sort of system far easier. They speak French rather than having six weeks RC drilling on, a, say, a, a, an iron ore operation on their CV from when they were an undergrad. Yeah, no, certainly, and that's um, that's a great bit of advice. So um, hopefully, uh, hopefully, a lot of people uh, are listening, listening, and obviously uh, take notice of that. Um, moving on, obviously moving um, on with your career, obviously you worked for Goldfields and then what was your decision to go into banking? What, why did you make that decision and how did you find going into that industry or, or into that sort of sector, obviously from working out, out in the field to then going into probably a corporate environment and what challenges did you face? Yeah, so I think in terms of um, so in terms of leaving Goldfields into SRK, um, SRK were actually doing some work for Goldfields on the, the Tarqua feasibility study, which is a mine in West Africa, and I got seconded from the Goldfields operations into uh, head office uh, across to the work with the SRK team. So I got to meet the SRK team and. And actually, they offered me a position to go and work at SRK. So hence, that's how I stepped out of production into, okay, into yeah. SRK. And then similarly, uh, while at SRK, we were working uh, on a pretty big transaction back in the late 90s, which some of the older listeners will certainly remember was um, when the Ashanti, uh, Ashanti hedge book had uh, hit the buffers back in the late 90s. And, uh, uh, and there was a, the big issue with the margins call there is that Barclays was one of the banks working to, to try and sort of put a rescue package together to help uh, you know, keep uh, Ashanti as a viable business. Yeah. This is prior to Anglo Gold buying it. So SRK were the technical engineers on that role. So I ended up working with the, with the, sort of, um, the, uh, the banking group and got to know the Barclays guys. When that transaction had finished, um, they were looking for a technical resource to come and join the team and help them assess investment opportunities. So I was able to step across. So I guess first off, I was stepping into an environment where I knew a number of the team members because I'd worked with them as part of the transaction. So that probably smoothed it a little bit easier, uh, more easily for me. Um, and then really into the banking world, again, I sort of started off with a very technical remit around financial uh, uh, and technical economic modelling, as well as technical reviews within that bank. So. I was sort of joining with a core competency. And then just by being in the room, by being in the bank itself, is that you then start to sort of understand what the various transactions are, what the structures, be it lending, hedging, uh, currency, all these sort of various things as well. And over the course of two or three years, while you're focusing on the technical work, you do sort of by osmosis assimilate a lot of information. And I think ultimately, you know, working with some very good quality people there as well is that you sort of eyes and ears open and you try and sort of, you know, absorb as much of that uh, information as possible. And I guess what you kind of really realize is that ultimately banking is is not as complex as it's possibly seen, certainly not within relation to the mining sector. And I worked with a chap called Andrew Daly, who was um, a fantastic chap at the bank there. Uh, and he famously once said, look, just think about this as the conservation of energy principle, you know, energy and energy out of the system. 
it's the same with dollars. You put dollars into a transaction, dollars come out. And as long as you can sort of balance the two, you know where you are. So when you're looking at complex hedge trades or anything like that as well, as long as you sort of follow the dollars, banking actually is, is relatively, um, can be relatively straightforward. And it's all about ultimately understanding risk. Um, that's the key, the art to it. So I think that was, um, so I, I think, again, I had a sort of fairly, in at my core competency around uh, around the technical work and the modeling work, and then two or three years of doing that, you're then sort of sitting in the room, you get to understand uh, uh, what's actually happening there and able to do that, such that when you come to look at banking transactions, you you know, you're coming from a position of strength, having understood what's going on. Yeah, certainly. Um, and would you say going into the banking industry, um, obviously working for Barclays has actually helped you succeed with Toro Gold going through that process as, a, as opposed to not going into the banking industry and working for a miner, then going to work for consultancy, then going straight into starting up a uh, exploration company. Would you say that that working for a bank um, has really helped you be more successful than if you didn't go into the banking industry? No, look, I, I think, you know, sort of personally, uh, more by accident than actual design, to be honest with you. But, yeah. but I think by the time we got to Toro, you know, I'd, I'd been in production, you know, a limited amount of time, 18 months, two years, but I'd been in production, done that. I'd been in consulting and been around study work and due diligence. I'd been in banking and seen sort of the lending and, and the financial aspects and, and how banks view sort of projects and companies and so on. We had the experience with the Diamond Company, which is a listed junior, which is an exit. So by the time we got to Toro, I guess I've been very lucky that I've, I've sort of seen the sector from several different perspectives. Yeah. And, and I guess what it gives you is that holistic view that it really realize that no independent decision, uh, no, no, no individual decision is independent. So whether you're looking at what you're doing with a drill bit or what you're doing with a, a, you know, a truck and shovel is that everything's linked up effectively. And it's understanding, having that ability to sort of sit above that and, and realize that it's all, it is all connected and able to sort of take decisions that happen from a technical basis and recognize the environmental or the lending or the financial impacts of that as well. So I think what it gave me was was a good grounding, having sort of done, worked in each aspect of, or different aspects of the sector uh, and just an appreciation of what the tensions are or what the requirements are in each aspect and then ultimately how they all join up, hopefully that you have a, a bit of a rounded approach to the company. Yeah, I suppose it's a bit like Trivial Pursuit with the uh, bits of cheese that you have to get into the, into the circle. So... You, there's six bits i think there's six six different colors and it seems that you've obviously gone through three or four different um work for three or four different entities that make up make up mining obviously banking finance consultancy obviously doing the design and obviously working out and working out on site so it's having all those little bits and bringing them together yeah, look, it's look, you know, it's the old uh, jack of all, master of none. I think yeah. the important thing is, is, you know, you have. I wouldn't claim to be an expert in any one of those individual areas, but having worked across them for reasonable amounts of time in each sector, is that you understand them, uh, and it goes from there. And I think one of the key things is to also to to know what you don't know. Uh, yeah. I think that's one of the things. It, it, it's all right to put your hand up and say, I don't know this. Let's let's find someone that does know that. So, um, but no, certainly having an appreciation of the different aspects of the sector, I think, has been really beneficial. Yeah. So I want to move on and uh, speak about, um, obviously, Toro Gold. Um, and obviously, one of the, obviously, Toro was one of the, the rare teams that made a, a greenfield discovery. Um, and you took it successfully into production and then had an exit strategy. Um, what were the lessons that you learned from, from that whole process? Yeah, it, it's, uh, look, it's 10 years, uh, it, it sounds quite simple when you put it that way. <laughs> it's sort of, it's sort of, you get to sort of pause now and look back on the sort of 10-year 10 10 year journey as we went through there, some sort of uh, fairly interesting times along the way. Uh, look, I, I think there's a number of things that sort of, you know, I've, I've had a little chance to reflect over the last month since um, exiting sort of Toro Resolute, and it's been sort of good to actually have a little think about, you know, what we did, what we did well, what we didn't yeah. do so well, um, and hopefully, you know, with uh, with... Toro to sort of Toro potentially sort of, you know, something to think about for next year is, is that sort of trying to pick up uh, the lessons from that and make sure we either learn from things we did badly and, and try and repeat the things we did well. So, look, I think there's no magic formula to it. Um, I would say, first and foremost, I think that, that fundamentally the success of any business, it comes down to the people. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and having it, it's a it's a bit of a cliche and it's a bit of an obvious thing to say, but, but genuinely having people that, that sort of 
are they don't have to be world leaders experts, but having you know highly competent people or competent people in their individual disciplines. Um, I, I think was the, the real key to Toro, and we go all the way back to the sort of the early days of exploration. I say Howard Bills co-founded Toro with me, a you know geologist with um, with a number of years of successful experience through Samac Axman and now Toro. So so you know Howard leading the charge geologically, I think was uh, uh, you know obviously was the cornerstone, the the foundation, if you like, that, that Toro was built on. But then really, as we started to move through the gears. And as we're then looking at sort of now we're starting to do some preliminary sort of study work is bringing in, you know, uh, uh, the relevant people and building out the team and the experience as you sort of move towards, you know, study work and then engineering and then into, into construction. Uh, and I think what we what we did, I think we built a, an excellent team uh, through the environmental and social aspects with Paul Cannon and Glenn Armstrong, the work they did into the study work with the likes of Russell White, um, who came on board as our construction guy, uh, well, actually project and construction guy, Adrian DeFreitas took on the GM role. We got a bunch of very, very good people uh, who, uh, who were really sort of, um, you know, very experienced and competent in their fields. And then sort of my job as the CEO was to try and make sure that, one, is that there was a coordinated approach amongst those individuals, and then really sort of, you know, build that team uh, and build the direction that we were taking. So I think first and foremost is, 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 um, is the team of people. We had some excellent sort of um, board oversight like of Adonis Perulis, who was a, an early supporter and, and chairman for a number of years with all his African experience. Mark Connolly came on board, who is, um, uh, people know him from, uh, most notably, I think, recently from the Papillon transaction when they sold that to B2. Yeah. And then more recently, Nick Clark from Central Asia Metals, yeah. uh, amongst uh, other things as well. So I think we also benefited then from having some really experienced, high-quality people uh, from a board perspective, being able to sort of provide that sort of oversight and input and guidance as well. So I think really the sort of, you know, the success of the, of the company is down to the success of the team. Uh, and, and again, back to that mantra of knowing what you don't know, uh, not being afraid to say that, and then go and find the right people that you uh, that you need to find those answers and execute from there as well. So yeah. I think that was kind of, you know, that's an obvious thing to say. Yeah. I think the other thing then is that um, I think for many junior companies, or certainly in the exploration space, is that um, is always work with the intention that your any project you find you fully intend to develop. Um, now that sounds a sort of fairly obvious thing to say, but I, I'm not sure every company, certainly in the resource geological space, sets out with the intention of, of if they make a discovery, we'll develop it. I think one of part of, one of the models that people look at is we'll take this to a drill out stage, put a maiden resource on it, and then we'll look to pass it on. You know, that's the sort of, you know, an approach you sometimes hear. But we took a different view that, that right from the start, we made the statement that if we made a geological discovery and if it technically and economically supported it, we would be prepared as a company and a team to take it all the way to production. And I think that does two, it does two things. One is that when you're doing your individual stages of evaluation, be it resource drilling, uh, be it sort of pre-fee, scoping study or interfeasibility study, your ESIA work, how you're setting up the staffing of the business, how you're engaging with communities and government. If you genuinely are intending to build the project yourself, then I think the quality of work and the way you go about it, the ownership you take about it, because you might be there for the long haul, I think that sets a certain tone. And I think yeah. that's important. And I think importantly as well is that if any way on that sort of journey of, of resource to study work to engineering, if another group does come and tap you on the shoulder and say, listen, we like the look of this, we'd like to talk to you about basically, you know, acquiring the business. If you are genuinely, uh, if you are genuinely sort of uh, have done some high quality work and you are prepared to, to take the project forward yourself, you could argue with a reasonable level of, uh, of, of confidence that actually they've got to be looking at the MPV because, you know, that that's the option is not to do a deal with you. The option is to keep taking it forward ourselves as well. So I think it puts you in a fairly or puts you in a stronger position corporately if someone does come knocking on the door, whereas if they know that you're a, a guaranteed seller because you've stated you'll take it to resource and sell, then, you know, then you're probably in a slightly sort of weaker position as well. So I think that that sort of aspect of, of committing to projects to, to take them forward one, it sets the tone internally, how you go about the work, and two, it sort of sends a message externally that, yes, obviously things are always for sale, but if they are for sale, it's going to be for the right price. We're not price takers at this point because if the price isn't right, we'll just keep taking it forward ourselves, I think. I think yeah. that's an important aspect. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And I suppose it's like any project, you've got to have an exit and you decided that was your exit. Um, and like you obviously, you work at various stages to that exit. So... Um, and I suppose not too many companies go through, or especially explorers, 
don't go through into production. They seem to obviously then sell it at a certain stage. But obviously, you made you made that decision to go through that more difficult process going into production, um, and then that's where you're going to exit the business. So I suppose it, that was a bigger goal and a bigger, longer strategy that you were decided to do. Look, I, I think I, I, well, that's the way it eventuated. Look, to be honest with you, had we got through, say, the pre-feasibility stage, and that gold, if at the time gold price was absolutely flying along. And somebody came along and said, look, we just have to have this project and we're prepared to pay a, a pretty full valuation for it. Then, yeah. then you, you'd, have, you'd have taken the bid at that point. So, you know, so I, I think the reality was is that we were committed to push the project forward, but recognizing on behalf of shareholders, because they ultimately own the business, that at any point along that process, if, if, if the right offer came in, then, then of course you're for sale. So, yeah. so I think that, that, that's there. I think the other thing to say just around um, uh, around that is that sort of whether you call it trust or confidence in the team is that if you've got the right team of people and you're doing the right work as well, I think one of the things that we worked hard at Toro is to, is to it sounds a bit glib again, but it's to say, listen, we're going to do something, tell people you're going to do it, and then go and do it and tell them you've done it. Yeah. And I think it's, it's a remarkably rare commodity in the, the duty of mining and resource space that people rarely sort of oh not rarely it, it's 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 surprising how many people don't deliver into their promises or don't commit to you know there's always something come up there's a reason why and i i felt that a lot of the sort of the um praise or the the, the compliments received about toro was that we were a team that delivered and, and I, I think personally is that all we ever did was that we, we did what we said we were going to do yeah. and i think that's actually a relatively a relatively rare commodity in the sector. I think that's something the sector could do an awful lot better. And that, that could be with investors. It could be with local communities. It could be with host governments and so on. But, but having that confidence and trust that here's a team that says that does what they said they're going to do. Now, having said that, things don't always go well. You hit speed bumps. You have issues you know, along the way. So sometimes plans you know, have to change. You know, commodity prices change. But I think you know, if you've generally sort of got out and sort of set clear plans out and delivered into them and then reported back on it, that buys you a lot of sort of cap, you know, political capital when things do go badly, that people are prepared to give you the trust or the benefit of doubt that you can fix things when you go from there as well. Yeah. So I think that's something that we sort of value at, at Toro as well is a, an ability to sort of deliver into our promises and build that trust. And I say that's with investors, with the board, with local communities, with, with host governments as well. Yeah. What was some of the sort of biggest or the biggest challenge you faced during your, your sort of time with Toro and how did you overcome that? Uh, well, look, as a junior explorer, the biggest challenge is always money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've always got the cash out, right? You're always walking around and always trying to raise the next dollar because, um, you know, it, it's a competitive market out there. Yeah. Uh, think, things change commodity price-wise as well. So, you know, that, that's but I think that's common across all junior explorers, yeah. right? Um, so, uh, so money aside... Look, I think one of the challenges we did face was um, that we were the project when it was discovered, you know, salt and law is always the way with these things, is that it was about two, three kilometers from a, uh, a, a national park in Senegal, which yeah. also, just to really compound the issue, happened to be a UNESCO World Heritage Site as well. So, yeah. you know, if you're going to double down, you might as well go the full shot, right? Uh, so we ended up with a... Uh, a technically sort of relatively technically simple project in terms of the geology, the mining and the metallurgy. Um, but we did uh, face with being relatively close proximity to UNESCO Park yeah. uh, and also the Gambia, the Gambia River. So I think one of the sort of the biggest challenges we faced was how to go about one, the exploration, but then secondly, development operations, just being very cognizant of these two highly sensitive environmental receptors and how we negotiated that. So yeah. that was probably a big challenge. We found the government of Senegal... The, the current president, uh, 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 Macky Sall, um, he's uh, the ex-mining minister, so he was um, very pro the mining sector, very keen supporter for us in terms of, you know, recognising the benefit of mining to Senegalese growth. So, you know, we found that, again, by being a good actor, a good faith actor with government, uh, and you were pushing on an open door with a government that was keen to support mining. So I think Senegal was a, an excellent jurisdiction to, to find and develop something. So I think we had good support there. That was less of an issue. And I think, again, with the relatively immature mining sector in Senegal, there's only ourselves and Taranga at the moment so operating gold mine. Well, I should say Resolute now, <laughs> operating yes. a gold mine in Senegal. Uh, um, 
you know, local community issues is, is that, you know, we had, uh, were able to engage with the community with a relatively clean sheet uh, uh, that might have been more difficult in you know, sort of more mature mining sort of, uh, sort of mining jurisdictions uh, uh, out there across, uh, you know, West Africa. So, uh, again, government was supportive, local community was supportive, again, through engagement and trust from there. So I, I think when I look at sort of, you know, the big holistic or the big sort of um, the big challenge to the business, uh, it, it was definitely sort of interaction with that park and that river and how we tackled that. Yeah. Um, obviously, you mentioned that you've um, you've had time to reflect on on your time at Toro Gold. Looking back, would you have done anything different? Uh, maybe you could have implemented something or made a different decision, which would then have a different outcome. Was there sort of anything you can think of that you could have done differently? Uh, I think, oh, that's a good question. I mean, it's always hard to know, right? Because yeah. you wouldn't think differently. Would they have worked out sort of slightly, you know, a, a different path? There's always the tension. Or, or, stayed private. Yeah, I was going to say, well, was there a time where you were going to make a decision, but you had a few different options and you didn't know what option to choose? Perhaps. Um, to be honest with you, um, I think when we were, you know, presented a number of options and they could have been technical options, for example. So let's say it could have been the configuration of the mine, and the, the infrastructure during PFS, it could have been the options around, uh, you know, raising money at what valuation and, and whose money did we take and, 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 you know, and how did we build the sort of, you know, the register. So, uh, look, I, I think in, in that respect, again, sort of thinking back to the, the comments before around the team and the experience and the management and the board is that, you know, we always took a very sort of inclusive approach to discussions. And, and again, being a private company, as, as we mentioned earlier, is, is that, it does afford you the ability to have more open and honest conversations with the board and say senior investors that you couldn't do as a listed company. So I I think to be honest with you, as long as you're acting on behalf of all shareholders, obviously that's, that's critical to make sure that everyone's being considered, but you could have, a number of conversations and you could sit down with some, you know, hugely experienced, uh, you know, investors that we had in our register. You could sit down with a very experienced board that had a number of sort of, you know, years of skilled experience around that. And you could sit and you could sort of come to consensus on this is, you know, these are the several options on the table. Which one do we want to take forward as well? So I think what we did successfully, what we did well is that when we came to those critical junctures is that we looked at them, you know, analytically. We had an awful lot of experience in the room and we could debate it and, you know, hopefully, you know, nine times out of ten came to consensus and we push forward on that basis as well so i think that was probably something we did well but also a reflection of the fact that the private company we probably had a little more latitude to do that than maybe we've been in the listed space yeah um obviously you mentioned obviously toro uh, gold was a private company um what's your views or what views do you have on sort of being a private company versus more traditional route of being a public public company um in in i suppose in the the environment that you were in yeah well look i i i think you know why do most companies go public is that probably they're forced that way because you know there's there's obviously a lot more liquidity well <laughs> traditionally there's a lot more liquidity in the listed space yeah. for that so you know in terms of you know companies tend to develop to a point they tap out their source of sort of private funding and then the next stage to rise that next cliff of 10 or 15 million dollars is to complete an ipo and then access the public market so so I think you know that that route is obviously the more the more sort of conventional route. Uh, look, I, I think for us as a private company, you know, as a management team, we didn't live with a share price day to day. So, you know, if things were happening in the uh, in uh, you know in the market, short term volatility, as we weren't watching the share price swing up and down, uh, you know, so management could actually focus getting on the job of developing you know the macro uh, projects and also the rest of our exploration, and not having to live that share price day to day. So it allowed us a certain you know, focus to, to do that. I think then in addition to sort of, you know, having that, um, having that sort of ability to focus, it allowed us again to, to be um, a lot more, shall we say, honest around when we're doing evaluations, at pre-fees, feasibility stage, scoping study, is that, you know, I can imagine that there is a temptation there that, that you're, uh, you know, you're a listed company, you're always hungry for good news flow. So, you know, a number of, uh, I guess that you've seen it in the past, a number of groups, they put out a, you know, overly optimistic scoping study that looks great. Then they sort of refine the numbers and they push it a bit harder that then sort of PFS comes out not quite as good as the scoping. The feasibility comes out not quite as good as the PFS. So you kind of three levels of disappointment. And then by the time you actually get into production, 
you know, you can't hide at that point. The numbers come out where they are as well. So that's, you know, that, and that's, I guess, born to a certain extent by sort of market pressures to be putting out good news flow to keep the share price up. Yeah. So I think when we look at that, we didn't have to play that game. You know, we could sit there with our, with our significant investors who are all, you know, uh, you know, very experienced uh, resource players. And we could have very honest conversations around, you know, the, the project and starting off with an MPV at the scoping study that we actually improved at PFS. We then improved into feasibility study. And then our first year of operations came out ahead of the, the feasibility work as well. So we were able to, to sort of, you know, set, uh, set, set the stall out with a, 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 you know, a reasonable level of, I'd say, conservatism in there. Such that we knew we had enough cash to build. We knew we and then had good the forecast of cash cost and production would cover the debt repayments in the first year and so on. So again, it allowed you to take a more, shall we say, prudent approach to the, the evaluation of the project without having to sort of chase the share price all the time as well. So I think that was a huge benefit. Yeah. Um, I would say sort of on the downside, I mean, you know, there's always two sides to this as well, is that, that you know, with a, a, a private company, there is probably a bit more oversight, shall we say, uh, with some of these uh, big investors, you know, sort of the levels of reporting, they, they do have generally more information rights that come along with conditions of their funding. So they are a little bit more into your business than, than if you're a listed company. And, and you know, that can mean uh, just anything from the simplest, just more reporting on a regular basis, sometimes through to having sort of, you know, uh, more of an input into sort of day-to-day management type process as well. So there's always a tension on that side as well. And it's just something that it comes as a condition of the, um, a condition of the funding, to be honest with you. So, um, yeah, look, uh, we, we, you know, we benefited, I think, greatly from being a private company. Um, had we been public, would it have been different? We possibly would have been taken out at pre-fees or feasibility study stage because, you know, markets were quite down at that point. Uh, and maybe we'd have sort of been at a quite a cheap valuation and some kind of opportunity picked us up quite cheaply. Uh, as it was being a private company, having the backing of those large resource investors is that we weren't vulnerable to a, a hostile or opportunistic bid. If someone wanted to buy the business, they had to come in the front door, deal with the board, deal with our shareholders and, and, and pay a fair price at that point. You know, they couldn't yeah. sort of, uh, you know, play the market game as well. So, yeah, look, there's swings and roundabouts, but I, I think on the whole, I would say it was it was a largely positive experience for us and certainly helped us get us to where we got to in the end. Yeah. Um, what's your view on the future of mining um, and I suppose the short to medium term? Look, I, I think um, a number of things. Look, I talking to a number of uh, investors and fund managers over the last uh, few months, just sort of getting a, a sense of where things are, yeah. is that a couple of themes that I'm sort of picking up on is, is that, look, ultimately, if we're talking about a low-carbon future, uh, you know, renewables, uh, sort of uh, uh, sort of uh, carbon-free, you know, power generation, let's, let's, you know, be brass tacks about this, is that fundamentally all of those technologies still require, you know, primary metal input. Uh, mm-hmm. And whether that's cop- copper, whether that's you know uh, more more fancy stuff like lithium and so on, is that it, it's there. So look, it, it's there to stay. It's not going away, and a low carbon future requires it. So I think on a on a long term basis, is the sectors here. Um, I think things like you know coal and so on are going to be incredibly tricky to to finance that. But certainly, sort of metals that will support the uh, uh, the sort of a low carbon future are, are here. So that's on a sort of a medium to long term basis. We we can't get away from that, uh, which is a good thing for the sector, obviously. But yeah. um, you know that's where we are. I think in the short term, one of the themes that picking up as well, and, and obviously we've been Africa focused for the last ten years or so, is that um, is that sort of the concept of sort of risk off or around country and security risk is um, is is significant now. And yeah. you know when we started Toro in two thousand and nine. Yeah, the Burkina, Mali, you know, all these sorts of Guinea, all these sorts of places you could happily go. You could sort of go there to the capital. You could go out into the field. You could walk around and feel, you know, uh, uh, you know, perfectly safe and fine. Mm. I think fast forward to 2019 now, and if one was to look at a, certainly an Africa map, is that the sort of the political, well, not the political, but the security uh, and the safety aspects of that, and that map's a very different place today. Yeah. Uh, and you've got to look at, you know, one, where would I personally like to go? Where would I be comfortable having, you know, people that work for me go? Uh, and you look at where can you raise dollars for? And, and I think, you know, certainly Africa looks a very different place today than it did 10 years ago. So I think the concept of, of country risk is something in the short term that is um, incredibly sort of uh, pertinent now. And, you know, sort of the likes of people looking in, in sort of more, um, more sort of, uh, you know, more secure, more safe uh, jurisdictions, I think seems to be a theme that, that I'm picking up on from time to time as well. Um, uh, but ultimately, you know, you, you've got to go where the rocks are, right? You've got yeah. to go and, and where the, ge- the geological potential is. Um, 
so as well. So I think that's a short-term tension yeah. uh, 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 around that. And I think then you have to come back to is, is, is the skills base is that, you know, I think exploration has been choked off the last four or five years in a significant way. So there's, a, there's not much of a pipeline of projects coming through now to replace uh, existing production as it depletes. So I think there seems to be a bit of a structural gap in, in, in you know, the pipeline of projects coming through. And commensurately with that as well is that, you know, skills in terms of experienced people, geologists, engineers, metallurgists that graduate, get 10, 15, 20 years experience on, under their belts. So by the time they hit their late 30s, early 40s, they've got a, you know, an excellent grounding in the sector. They're coming to be the next leadership group coming through that will take the sector, you know, in their sort of 40s and 50s through forward. Is that, you know, is there a gap for those people? Certainly from the yeah. UK. Uh, and more broadly is that, you know, with that sort of, are we sort of in danger of having a bit of a demographic issue as well around sort of experienced junior sort of people getting that experience, learning the game uh, and then coming through from there as well. So, uh, again, probably positive for the, the, the graduates at this stage, if they can get themselves into into work, is that I think demographically there's a bit of a, a potential for the skills shortfall there as well. Yeah, certainly. I mean, obviously, I'm I'm a recruiter, so I see... I see this all the time and what I notice is there is there is a gap in that middle management what what have you called middle management but probably people between the ages of 30 and maybe 40 or even up to 45 there does seem a lot less candidates in that age bracket which is pretty big age bracket um it seems obviously that the workforce seems to be a lot older um and then obviously you've got graduates, which again, there's not many graduates coming through the various courses. Um, the numbers are well down as well. So I think there seems to be less people coming into the industry and studying. And I think that has been like that for, for quite a period of time. Um, and I think probably it seems a lot less now, probably because of the, the way the market is at the moment and has been for the past five, six, seven years. Um, but I, I believe there is a, a skill shortage at the moment. If you look at terms of experience and age between the 30 and 45 year old mark, I would say. Yep. And that's just, a, I suppose, a general observation. No, I, I, you know, that, that I would agree effectively. You know, I think that's right. Um, uh, despite the way I look, I'm, I'm actually just 45 myself. So <laughs> I, have to look around. <laughs> I look a bit older these days, I'm told. But, um, uh, but, um, but you know, you, you look around sort of, you know, who are the next generation that's going to be sort of, you know, driving the industry for the next 10, yeah. 15 years. And you, you look around and there does seem to be a sort of, um, you know, sort of two populations. There's the more experienced guys now in their sort of 50s and 60s. Yeah. There's the younger guys coming through there, but it's where are those guys? It's the middle part. Of, you know, I, I, want say, I want to say guys, of course, uh, being gender neutral, I, I mean, you know, generically, uh, men and women, yeah. where, are the, where are those people coming through, uh, you know, at that sort of, uh, with those 10, 15 years experience now as well. So yeah. it, it's, it's an interesting time. And, and I, I don't think it's a UK-centric issue, uh, no. talking to people in Australia. I, I think the same, you know, despite the absolute boom in Western Australia of the mining sector the last five, 10 years, is that I think, you know, something like the University of West Australia had a, a record low number of mining graduates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is you know bizarre given the sort of the absolute salaries and levels that are going on in in sort of the West the West Australian mining industry. So uh, it's not just a UK European issue. It does feel like it's a it's a broader sort of you know a, a sort of you know global issue in those traditional mining centres of North America, you know UK Europe and, and Australia. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Yeah, I mean, I um, I wrote a blog probably six months ago around um, the amount of mine engineers graduating out of Australia um, and. The, the need, the, the amount of people they actually, or graduates they needed in mine engineering. Um, and they were only, I think they needed about 250 and it was literally 50 graduates uh, graduating. I think it was last year. Um, so yeah, the numbers are well down. Um, and that's yeah. just obviously in one discipline. Um, yeah. that, and that's obviously a forecast of what, what they want and what the need is. So yeah, the numbers are well done, but I think it's all down to education. Um, I've been to a few conferences just more recently, the Minds and Money and the IMARC conference over in um, in Melbourne. Um, and I think, yeah, a lot of it is down to education and educating people before they go and choose to what to study at uni- university. Um, because a lot of them, I think, don't know too much about mining. And they and I think, again, it's a brat, it's a, an, an image thing around mining, thinking it's probably it's a dirty, dirty industry and. Um, but they don't actually understand it. And I don't think, and I think some of the mining companies probably have, 
have the duty to, and if they want to grow the industry and continue developing, um, actually need to go down to the grassroots and go go into the high schools and actually tell them what mining is about and, and how how important it is for the whole for the world in which to uh, in which to develop. So um, I think it goes down to very grassroots. Uh, I, I, I go into my children. I've got a ten and eight year old, and, and uh, the last few years I go in every year and I talk to the. Uh, they're probably bored of it, but I talk to the primary school kids around. Where do things come from? Yeah. You know, we live in a sort of almost post-industrial sort of you know Western Europe and North America. Australia is the same. Is that you know your iPod and your your Xbox? They just and the TV just turn up, right? They just <laughs> yeah. you know where where do they come from, right? It yeah. just magically turns up, right? Some somebody in they're fabricated in Southeast Asia and shipped over here. But yeah. that understanding of where the primary metals that come yeah. to support that from is that it's you know it's like a a piece of steak turning up in a supermarket wrapped in cellophane. Is that you know the concept that it comes from a cow and it, it's that kind of I guess we're we're missing that linkage. So trying yeah. to put that back, as you say, the sector probably has a bit of a, a probably somewhat justifiably a, a bit of a, a an image issue. But as you yeah. say, it's going to come education, pointing out that actually it is a clean, it is an ethically responsible uh, industry. It's essential to to what we do. So it's got to go forward on that basis. It can be done well. There, are, it can be done successfully uh, on a win win basis. And, and trying to recruit talent into the sector is um, is difficult. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, certainly. Um, I want to slowly wrap this up. Um, and my last question is, what is Martin going to do next? Uh, well, apart from going to Old Trafford to see your lot be <laughs> yeah. probably tomorrow night at the Spurs fan. Um, uh, aside from that immediate short-term uh, issue. Um, look, I, I think we've said as the Toro team that, that weren't retained by Resolute. So a number of yeah. the, the team have obviously stayed on with Resolute. But the, the senior executive team, uh, the founders and so on, we've uh, we've all moved on, obviously. Um, yeah. Look, I, I think we've generally said that, that we, uh, we, we can stomach working together. We all can just about hang on together again. So we're going to put the band back together, as it were, uh, yeah. to use the Blues Brothers quote. Um, <laughs> and I think in, in early, early 2020, we'll sort of get our heads together uh, and look at the opportunities. And, and I think, you know, we'd be interested to look at anything from a something that's a greenfield early stage. We feel we could take that on. We could take something on at the study stage. We could even take something into construction and operations as well. So we feel that, that you know, we're, we're going to be looking right across the spectrum of, of everything from exploration to operation. Yeah. We'll be looking carefully at country risk. We'll be looking at commodity and so on. And ultimately, the quality of the project. And if we can find something that that needs uh, that needs a team, um, I think we can probably raise a few dollars off the back of the Toro success. So, um, yeah, so the plan at this stage is nothing more than put the band back together in early 2020, yeah. uh, have a look around, see if we can find something that we think is, is interesting and that has you know, geological and technical potential uh, and then see if we can't uh, take that forward and, and, and try and repeat what we've done again, see if we can get lightning to strike twice. Yeah. I mean, is there any jurisdictions or commodity you prefer? I mean, do you, are you quite happy continuing in Africa and continuing gold or are you really pretty open? Look, I, I think that, that was a, sort of the one question we probably have asked ourselves internally at this stage uh, as the little group. Um, look, I, my own view, based on my combination of banking and experience as well, is that, look, I, I think bulk commodity uh, projects don't lend themselves well to junior companies. So iron ore, coal, these bigger, bigger things where it's significant amounts of capital. There's probably some infrastructure of rail or port handling required as well. It's big numbers to build them in terms of, you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollar capital projects as well. So I always think that, that junior companies trying to get their hands around or their arms around, uh, you know, one of these big scale bulk commodity projects, I, I, it feels too difficult. So so that would rule bulks out. I don't personally like things where there's not a terminal market. So specialty metals, diamonds, things like that, where there's not a quoted price. You can't hedge, for example, if you're going to build something, you couldn't hedge out the first couple of years of production to to protect your, uh, yeah. your capital repayment period. So that kind of rules out sort of fairly funky stuff and things like diamonds. Um, so when you bring that all back together, uh, I think we'd certainly gold, obviously, but also I yeah. think base metals. Uh, I think the process we learned at Toro around taking a project from drilling through to production those skills can be equally applied to, say, a copper or a zinc or a lead project. So yeah. it kind of feels that it, it, it's copper and base metals. They're probably the right size in terms of capital that you could raise. They've got the right skill set that we could take them on to, to develop them uh, as well. So uh, and you can obviously the terminal markets. You've got a bit of price clarity on the uh, on where the, the future prices might be. So base and base and uh, and, and precious. 
um, and jurisdictionally. Look, you know, Africa is a very big place. Uh, there's some parts of it where clearly, uh, you know, uh, I wouldn't go. Yeah. Well, my wife wouldn't, my wife wouldn't let me go, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, this place, uh, there's a number of places, you know, we had a fantastic time in Senegal. Uh, we were busy in Cote d'Ivoire. That was a, a great place. Guinea's an interesting place right now. There's other places like Namibia, for example, that are yeah. well-established and I, I say used to work down there. There's a couple of emerging places, which I think are quite interesting, like Zimbabwe and Angola, possibly, as an early mover status. East Africa with Sudan now, yeah. post-Bashir. So, uh, so you know, Africa is a pretty big place, right? So I think there's places that would be off the list uh, and there's places on it. But then again, we might also look, um, you know, something that is, uh, uh, you know, not too far from our London base. So if, yeah. if I think about time zones, it might be a couple of three hours heading, um, heading east and a couple of three hours heading west. And when you look at that from a London time zone basis, there's a... There's a lot of rocks uh, yeah. in that sort of that sort of four or five hour window. So um, yeah, look, uh, country risk, geological potential, uh, uh, sort of you know uh, security issues as well. Put all those together uh, and look at precious or gold metals. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, or gold. Yeah. Well, I'll certainly be uh, be uh, looking out for you and uh, interested in uh, in what you actually go go and do. So um, yeah, I'll be one of your fans. Thank you very much. You're very kind. Um, really appreciate your time, Martin, for taking the uh, taking time to do this podcast. Um, if our audience wants to uh, connect with you or contact you, if they've got any questions they may may feel that you can um, help them with. Um, how can they go about doing that? Um, I, I, are they able to sort of you know filter them through you, Rob? Obviously, yeah, yeah, the, the website and so on. Yeah, look, yeah. I'd be more than happy if you wanted to aggregate a number of questions. Yeah. I could either um, I could we could aggregate them together, and I could do a written you know a few answers back there or a follow up to this as well. So yeah. obviously, you, you you've got the sort of the brand and the website there. If people want to yeah. funnel those in. If, if there are any questions, then yeah, maybe you and I can chat about that. And we can we can sort of either put a, a little thing on your website or, or even yeah. just a supplement to this and go from there. Yeah, certainly. Well, I've actually just reached well today actually. Um, recently launched a um, the podcast website. So, if anyone wants to ask Martin any questions, um, you can go to the website, which is called which is www.digdeeptheminingpodcast.com. It's a bit of a mouthful, um, but you can go onto the website. There's a form that you can fill out, ask ask a question um, that will come to me. Also, you can just uh, email myself, which is rob at mining-international.org. Um, and any questions you've got for Martin, I can then um, facilitate that and um, get Martin to uh, answer answer any questions that you may have. So, um, so yeah, really appreciate your time, Martin. I hope the audience enjoyed the podcast um, and obviously learned a lot from it, basically because this is what the, the whole reason why I'm doing these podcasts is is for educational purposes so people listening can actually get something from it um really appreciate all your emails and comments you make um and keep telling your friends and colleagues about about this podcast because i want to filter it out as far as i can um it's obviously free to download free to listen to um and just want to keep reaching out to more and more people in um more and more mining professionals around the world so um so until next time Happy mining. Thanks for listening to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. If there are any topics you want discussed or questions you want to ask any guests, then you can email us at rob at mining-international.org or you can follow Rob and Mining International on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube for more content and to have your questions answered. Until next time, happy mining.